0: I would like to ask you if you have a Bible with you today that you would open it up to our text, Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. 16th century theologian John Calvin, a great minister of the word, an author, a true champion of Christianity for all times wrote in the opening of his book Institutes of a Christian Religion a statement that I found quite interesting. I'm going to give it to you. It isn't a direct quote, but it gives you the essence of what he is saying. Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say truly sound wisdom, consists of two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. Now now think of that. True wisdom, knowledge, comes from either knowledge of God or of ourselves. It made me think of those that do not have any knowledge of God. And what that is, is includes each Christian because someplace in our life there was a voidness. Of the knowledge of God. I know that's kind of hard for us to grasp in this group. I would find it unusual that there would be somebody here this morning that has no knowledge of God. It could be. But think about that and try and understand what it would be like to have no knowledge of God so our wisdom only comes from ourselves. I think an individual like that might have a conversation about himself that would go something like this. You know, I I got a pretty good handle on this thing called life. Right now, I got all my bills paid. Things are going pretty good at work. In fact, things are going pretty good at home. I've never been in jail I don't kick the dog. I look around and I I see some people that have a better life than I do, but I also see other people that don't have it as good as I do. You know what? I think that my life is good. There's roughly 10 million people in Michigan. Of that 10 million people, 7 million people can make a statement like that. By some estimates, 7 million people in this state alone do not have a saving knowledge of the one true God. And they will make the statement that says, I think that life is good. But what does God's word say about life and what makes it good? Let's look to his word for that answer. I read from Ephesians verses 1 through 3 and chapter 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and among whom we all once lived and passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we were and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind what paul is saying to his audience in this letter is mankind is dead in sin this state has been seen from Genesis chapter 3 when the fall came about and man and woman decided to rebel against God and be their own God. And Paul is telling the Ephesians here in the past tense to his audience, to Christians, that this is what you used to be like. It is still what those 7 million people that I referred to are like, void of the knowledge of who God is and of having a heart that has been, been regenerated. Paul tells us very specifically what that life will look like. Nothing like I described of the gentleman having a conversation with himself. What we see is unregenerate souls are dead in trespasses and sin. Trespasses and sin, that's kind of unique that he brought those two elements together. Are trespasses sins? Yes. As sins trespasses? Yes. But it's kind of unique how the two of them come together. If I was going to use a definition for the word sin, I was, I was going to use 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, which says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. But what about these, trans, these trespasses that he talks about? Well, When I think about where Denise and I live and we leave our driveway and go down that first rural road, it doesn't take us very long before we come to our first no trespassing sign. And what that sign is saying is the owner has marked out his territory and put a perimeter around it and said, you may not cross this line. You do not have my permission to enter. This is as far as you can go. And I have the right to do that because I own it. And I get to make the rules. Friends, I think that Paul was talking to Jews that knew the law. That had been given those things that allowed them to understand how far they could go before they were trespassing with God. Before the rules had been crossed. And we understand that that is the nature that is inside each and every one of us. This is our internal state of sin. But it doesn't stop there, there's more bad news. The state of sin is also a conformity to the world, conformity to the world. Now, I've heard the statement said, when you're in Rome, do as the Romans. I've never been to Rome, so I don't know what that means. But I have heard this one. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, I've never been there either. But by that statement alone, there must be an atmosphere going on there that when you are there, you're caught up into it, and nobody's going to tell on you. Whatever you are exposed to, whatever you want to participate in, will stay in that place. That's a scary thought, my friends, but that's what the world can do to us by bringing us to exposure of sin. I think my example that I'm going to use for being exposed to the world, I'm going to look back to the 1960s and the sexual revolution that took place then. I know that there are some of us in this room that lived through that and can remember the before and after. Everyone in this room is post. We're living in the after, but we might not have seen how great the change was. How sexuality was completely rewritten. How gender roles were completely thrown out. How things like how we were to view sexuality in general was completely changed by what the world, by what a a certain element wanted it to be. And even to the point of sexuality, and who and when can participate in it. My friends, what we understand about this and what the Scripture says is that these things are always changing. They're always, always redefining themselves. And I believe that what we see in our present state is a continuation of the sexual revolution. What before was considered to be not part of of society, is said now to be embraced by all. And if you do not embrace it, you are intolerant. This, my friends, is an external state of sin. But we also are by nature bond slaves to sin and Satan. Satan. Bond slaves to sin and Satan. Now, that can sound like good news because now we have somebody to blame. We have the devil, and he must be leading us astray. It's all his fault. Well, my friends, it isn't quite that easy. Yes, Satan is a great liar. He is the great deceiver. He is there to lead us astray, but... He is nothing compared to God. He is not all powerful. He cannot be in all places at once. He cannot dictate those things in our life that we think and want to ascribe to him. Does that say that he is not a real force to be reckoned with? Absolutely not. If Jesus himself said to one of his disciples, get behind me, Satan, that should mean something to us also. Satan should be in our rearview mirror and in front of us our eyes should be fixed on the cross. I don't want to give Satan the time of day to go on about him even though that I realize that we must understand that he is real. I would rather praise God in his holiness than publicize the devil. Also, Paul goes on in explaining the state that man is in with an unregenerated heart. He says, we are by nature slaves to the flesh and our corrupt affections. As I was looking and under, uh, trying to understand better this, this passage, I came across a commentary that Matthew Henry had written on this uh, subject, and he didn't use the word slave. He called them drudges. 1600s language, drudges. And I thought that was pretty neat because I got this mental picture of us as drudges. And to help you understand that, I hope you know what the movie The Christmas Story is. Remember how Ralphie used to get ready for school in the morning and he had that snowsuit on? They must have been going through a winter like we just went through last year and they looked like like little uh, penguins going and, and just going on their way down to school each day, trying to get through the snow, trying to make it on their way. They're drudges, drudging along. But this is talking about corrupt affections. Let me tell you what some of those affections might be. Success, power, pride, freedom, wealth, physical attraction, affection, even love. And you say, those don't sound like bad things. They're not. But in our minds, the way that we work, we will take them in our unregenerated state and put a corrupt affection to it. My friends, we have a vicious appetite, and our mind will go as far as we allow it. Let me just give you one example, and I'm going to pick out wealth. There is nothing inherently wrong with wealth. But in our minds, we will take that. We will make it a God. We will say that we need nothing else because if money can't buy it, we don't need it. It is the answer to all our troubles. Jesus warned about it time and time again, told us what it would be like for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. That is our corrupt affections. Our mind will go that far with any of the good things that I mentioned. All of this brings us to what Paul said. We are by nature the children of wrath. Who's included in the statement the children? All men, women, and children are disobedient. The apostle was describing our miserable state, a life without God. And what did he say would happen to us because of that? We would all end in eternal wrath, punishment. And do we, do we deserve to be there? Absolutely, because we are the ones who rebelled against God. There are many that would say, mankind isn't that bad. I, I got to believe that there's a little bit of good in, in each one of us. If we just try hard enough, we can seek out out God and, and want to, to, to make some small form of movement toward Him. And the analogy that they might use is, we're drowning. Yes, we're in the water. And yes, we're underneath the water, but, but we can still get maybe one finger out of that water to show God that, that we want Him to pull us out. My friends, that's wrong. We're laying on the bottom of the ocean dead. Our lungs are filled with sin. There is no life in us. If that was my, the end of this message today, that'd be a pretty dismal place to end. But that's only half of what Paul was saying in our text. Let me read now from verses 4, 5, and 6, and 8, and 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By, by grace you have been saved and raised, and, and raised us up With him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. My friends, we have a new life. There is a glorious change by converting grace. This regeneration is going to happen. And Paul takes two things off the table immediately. He says, this is going to happen, but not by two things. The first one is not by ourselves. Verse 8 says, and this is not of your own doing. Our faith, our conversion, our eternal life has nothing to do with anything that we can do ourselves. There is no merit whatsoever in us. There is nothing in us that would make God respond to us. My friends, God does not need anything from us. But it also says it's not of works. Verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We very much have a earning mentality. We think even today that earning grows larger and larger and larger. If you watch any television and see any commercial about credit cards, You now understand all you have to do with your credit card is use it more, and you're going to be earning points. You're going to be earning cash back. You deserve to get that back. You've earned it. All you have to do is swipe that card. We go to school to get an education, to advance ourselves, and we earn a diploma. We earn a degree. And yes, it comes down to the basic fact that when we enter the workforce, when we trade labor, we get something for that and it's called our earnings, our paycheck. My friend, all of those things are right to a point. They mean nothing with God. There is nothing that we can do that would make Him owe us anything. He needs nothing from us. None of our works can put us in a right standing with him. But I have to now say, this isn't the only time in this message that works are taught or spoken about. We'll get back to works in a minute. So who changes hearts and lives and sinners? Look with me as I go to verse 4. But God. Let me repeat that. But God. Once more. But God. God is the one that regenerates and brings a new heart, a new life inside each converted sinner. But we have to ask ourselves a question. Why and how? first of all the why because who God is he is rich in mercy God sees us as rebels as sinners as unclean and yet has compassion on us it's the nature of God when he he revealed himself to the Israelites in the Old Testament time and time again they would rebel and go astray and what did God do he would bring them back to him That's the nature of who he is, his love and mercy. Jesus, when he walked this earth, would heal those that had afflictions. He never asked them, will you turn your heart over to me? He had compassion on them because of the great love that he had for mankind and healed them. Why did he show us this love? Because God is love. When did he show us that love? Verse 5 said, when we were dead in our sins. We have to understand, my friends, that God loves his creation. It's part of who he is. It's the nature of his holiness. But how does this change take place? By God's grace, verse 5 and 8. By the grace you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith. God himself, through his grace, unlocks and opens and enlarges the heart and soul to be regenerated in the truth of the gospel message. And what is that gospel message? It is that we were dead in our sin like we have already heard. There was nothing that we could do to change that situation. But God, because of who he is, would draw himself, draw us to himself through the power of of his redeeming work. And how would that come about? There was nothing that we could do, but God would act himself He, in the form of Jesus Christ, would come into this world, lead a sinless life, make atonement for the sin, for the price that we could not pay, and give us His righteousness, atoning for our sin, and openly and freely give it to us. And how do we receive that? By faith alone. We accept and receive his grace by faith. Also, Paul would now go on to say we should see God's design and plan in changing lives. There's a design and plan in changing lives. Verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. My friends, the minute that Paul wrote this scripture, it was meant to be an encouragement to those that read it. It is still an encouragement to everyone that reads it today because nothing, not one element, not one part of this statement has changed. God still gives grace to sinners. He calls them out. He renews in them a true heart to understand that he is the one true God and that that faithfulness is shown to us in the very nature of Christ coming into this world and leaving his throne on high to humble himself. to make atonement for our sin. And hidden in this little piece of scripture is a statement that we should proclaim and continue to acknowledge because he says it will continue throughout ages. There is no time limit on accepting God's great grace. As long as this world is spinning it's Paul says that God is going to be doing his redeeming work. There is also instruction in, in, to those uh, whom he has redeemed. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is part of his design and his plan to do good works. My friend, God is the potter. We are the clay. He has not only taken and and renewed and regenerated our hearts and minds, but he has also turned us into a vessel to do good work. Let's make sure that we have the order right, that good works do not attain and give us the ability to receive his favor. Because of what God has done in our hearts, the outflow of that great grace that we realize is in us when we see that God would call such a sinner as myself out, And show his grace to me that I can do more than to repay him with the fruits of who I am by the spirit that now lives in me. And what do those fruits look like? Many things. We may think that they're just random acts of kindness. But it's much more than that it's about a changed life it's about a christian that in this daily life understands that every person that he comes in contact with is important and he shows them the love and respect that god says each individual should have that when christians come together in fellowship with other christians it's not to be served but to serve that when those things come about in the local body of believers, those, those vacancies, those places of need, that there are those that don't wait for the next person. They say, I can do that. I know that I might not be that well-equipped at this time, but I want to help. I want to serve. It is the way that I'm going to show the fruits of God's Spirit in my life. And praise God when that happens. And I hope that it should bring conviction to each one of our hearts when we fail to be the one that's willing to step and do God's work. I believe it's also, and part of this is because of our men's study together, I believe that, again, God is speaking to husbands and wives about their relationship to their spouse. It's not those acts of kindness that says the spouse will cook my favorite meal or I will buy them something because it's something that they like. No, it's the newness of our heart. And we look at that relationship that God has so richly blessed us with and we say if it was that important that Christ himself would compare marriage to his relationship to the church, how much more, how much greater must my love be for that spouse that God has so richly given me? That every aspect of my life, I don't dwell on the shortcomings that each one of us have, but rejoice in the love and the time and the life that we have together. That's the outpouring of true devotion and good work. My friends, I believe that there's two groups here today. If I thought any differently, I would probably be deceiving myself. I believe that there are those that are here today that maybe have never felt the heart-changing work of the Holy Spirit. My word to you this morning is... Continue to seek after God. Be exposed to the truth of his word. Allow others, those that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to minister to and with you. Allow God to speak to your hearts. And for those of us who have been saved by God's grace, find joy in doing the work of his spirit. That dwells in us. Allow us to understand that great grace that has called us out of darkness and it brings us to a point of such joy and reward and awe of who God is that we can do nothing less than serve Him with every part of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do see that so terribly we were away from your will in our lives. That sin reigned over us. That Paul would again remember those that he was speaking to and say, past tense, this is who you were. Lord, in our lives, if that statement is true, we thank you. We thank you that you were the one that has changed our hearts, that allowed us to know and understand that you were the one that called us out of darkness to the glorious light of who you are, Lord. I pray again this day that not only for us who know you as Lord and Savior, that it gives us joy, but it also is a commitment to be your disciples to come alongside those, Lord, that may be still struggling to understand the truth of who you are, that think that life is good because of the world's standards, but apart from you, there will only be destruction. Allow us again to understand the truth of your word, and we will give you the grace and the glory and the honor for it all. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.